Queendom of Priests, where we've been exploring what it means that together, collectively, we are uh, a priesthood of believers, as the Bible declares it. Uh, and uh, so we were drawing on some verses in First Peter and Ephesians and Isaiah to kind of focus our hearts on that. But before that, we did about a four-month series in the book of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11, called Roots, where we were seeking to establish our roots uh, as the people of God and to understand and be shaped by the true story of the world. Because there are all kinds of competing stories that will shape you. You will be shaped by the story of your school. You will be shaped by the story of your workplace environment. You will be shaped by the story of media. Uh, you will be shaped by something. And we want it to be shaped by the true story of the world. So what we want to do for the next three months, really basically we're going to take this up until Christmas time, is keep on going through the book of Genesis, coming at it from a slightly different angle now. Uh, we want to explore the life of Abraham. And so we're going to cover about 10, 11 chapters together over the next 11 weeks. And we're calling it The Journey. Because God called Abraham, originally he was named Abram, and we'll talk at some point about the significance of that name change. But God called Abram to take a journey. And it was a journey of faith. But it was not just a journey of faith that involved Abram. Because we look at the text, when Abram responds in faith and in obedience to God, a whole lot of people go with him. His wife, his servants, his nephew. There's like a whole caravan of people. They're, they're a, a traveling band together. In fact, a couple of chapters in, we'll see that, that uh, Abram basically has his own army uh, in uh, Genesis chapter 14. There's a whole lot of people that are affected by Abram's journey of faith. Because our journey of faith is not just a solo journey, me and God and nobody else on this journey, but it's, it's a journey that I take as an individual, but more than that, it's a journey that we take together as a church. So that's what we want to explore. Hey, buddy. Over the next, uh, over the next three months, we want to explore this idea of journey together. So today's, uh, the title of today's sermon, I think I've got it on the screen, is a simple phrase that you've heard many times. A journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. And what we see is that Abram's thousand mile journey does begin with a single step here in Genesis chapter 12. And that's what we want to, to um, grapple with together today. Before we read the text though, here's the goal of our entire sermon series. This is what we want to accomplish over the next 11 weeks. Can we show the next slide, Sean? Our goal is to build faith together. As we journey with God. So I'm building faith as an individual for my own individual journey. But more than that, we are building faith together. We are going somewhere as the people of God. We're going together, not alone. All right, let's look at the text. Uh, Genesis chapter 12. Uh, I'm on page 9. So if you grab the Bible uh, the in front of you, it's on page 9. Give you just a minute to uh, to find it, but in Genesis chapter twelve, I'm going to read the entire uh, chapter. The words are on the screen as well. I'd also encourage you to be looking at the Bible uh, in front of you uh, and referencing it throughout the sermon. Page nine, chapter twelve, verse one. The Lord said to Abram, "Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing." I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the site of Shechem, at the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved on to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. He built an altar to the Lord there and he called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram journeyed by stages to the Negev. There was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, Look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. They will kill me, but let you live. Please say you're my sister, so it will go well for me because of you, and my life will be spared on your account. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, so the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household. He treated Abram well because of her, and Abram acquired flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, male and female slaves, and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with severe plagues because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh sent for Abram and said, What have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why, why did you say she's my sister so that I took her as my wife? Now here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave his men orders about him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would take this text, the truths of your unchanging word, and apply them to our hearts and to our minds. May we be moved to be people of faith in response to this text. And that whatever the next step is on our journey, that we would take it. That we would take it as individuals, that we would make it together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, Abraham was called the friend of God. It says that in the New Testament that Abram was called God's friend. Wouldn't you like to be called God's friend? Wouldn't it be great? Think of, think of your, your closest friend outside your family. All right, you've got that person in your mind. Got somebody you're thinking about. Maybe you have a few, but just pick one, all right? So your closest friend. What do you do with close friends? You, you hang out and you share meals together. Maybe you play games together. You have, you have deep Difficult conversations about the heaviest stuff of life, right? With your close friends, you're able to share what's on your heart. God, a lot of times, is pictured by a lot of people as a remote, distant tyrant. He's just, he's, he's, we either tend to think of him as, as Santa Claus, who just doles out the goods for us whenever we need it, or he's this awful, vindictive guy who just hates you. And you just got to somehow earn love. And we, we kind of, many of us, bounce back and forth between these two perspectives on who God is. But Abraham shows us a totally different perspective on who God is. Because he's described as a friend of God. Which means that God was also a friend of Abraham's. But it's interesting. 
we'd all love to have God in our court like that, right? Where it's like, yeah, God's my friend. So that if the, if the playground bullies are beating up on you, you'd be like, let me just call my friend. Like, let me, let me introduce you to my friend. He's better than anything you got. But the fact that Abram is a friend of God doesn't like make his life amazing. In fact, I want us to consider this quote from a writer named Eugene Peterson who said, God's friendship didn't install Abraham on an oasis where he slept on a hammock strung between date palms, refreshing himself with a swim in the pool between naps. God's friendship meant leaving home, long journeys, dangerous ventures, doubt-filled actions, difficult obedience. Peterson understood that for Abram, God's friendship meant a journey of faith. A winding, twisting journey. And although God has said, here's how it's going to end, Abram has no idea what's going to happen in the meantime. He has no idea what it's going to be like in Canaan. He's no idea what his neighbors are going to be like. He has no idea what's going to happen with nephew, with his nephew Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah. Like He doesn't understand or comprehend any of this. But friendship with God involves being called out and sent into the world. Doesn't guarantee us safety, doesn't guarantee us security, doesn't guarantee us a comfortable life, guarantees us the presence of God. Because that's what friends do, right? They're with one another in the difficult stuff of life. And God is Abram's friend. He is with him on this journey. So let's take a look at that journey together. I, when I look at this chapter, I really see three things that Abram's journey involved. I've got them on the screen. Abram's journey involved leaving, worshiping, and doubting. In this chapter, it involved those three things. Leaving, worshiping, and doubting. So let's take a look at, the, at those three things. Back in uh, chapter 12, verse 1, we see that Abram leaves. The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went. As the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. Next verse says. Takes all this stuff. And they set out for the promised land. First thing that is involved in Abram's journey of faith is leaving. Now, Abram leaves a lot of stuff behind. He leaves behind a comfortable life. Ur of the Chaldees, uh, where, where Abraham lived, was one of the most prominent cities of the Mesopotamian region. This was a comfortable life. Now, we know that Abram was fairly wealthy. He's got a lot of stuff uh, that it, it talks about. And there are, there are several indicators throughout the, the next ten chapters that Abram has a lot of stuff. I don't know if he would be qualified as a millionaire by the standard of the day or not, but, but he's wealthy. He's got, a, he's got a lot of stuff. But when you take it with you, you're involving certain risks that you're going to lose it, that it's not going to be as secure, that bandits are going to steal stuff. And Abram is risking his security. He is risking his fortune. He is risking a comfortable retirement. I mean, dude, the guy's 75. This is about when, uh, when most Americans are already like several years into their retirement. They're kicking back. 
they're enjoying life and uh, they're planning their next cruise. God's like, Abraham, I need you to go. I know you're old, but I need you to go. I need you to take all your stuff. I need you to take all your people and leave. So he leaves behind a, a, a comfortable setup. He leaves behind the security. He also leaves behind family. There's a cost to following God. And in this case, it's forsaking some family. Now, he, he certainly takes some family with him. Um, says he takes his wife, Sarai, and his nephew, Lot. But he doesn't take, as far as we know, any other family with him. Some of, some of his family is mentioned in the previous chapter, and we talked about that at the end of our Root series. But he leaves a lot of family behind. Family that are probably scratching their heads. They're like, your decision doesn't make any sense, Abram. You're going where? Well, I'm going to this place um, over the river somewhere. I don't know a whole lot about it, but God said it's mine. And his family's like, Abraham, you're crazy, man. This is nuts. You got to start thinking more rationally. You got to start making more, more wise and informed decisions. And he says, no, God has called me to go. He leaves behind a comfortable setup. He leaves behind the financial security of Ur, of the Chaldees. He leaves behind his family. But most significantly, he leaves behind his gods. Joshua, at the end of the book of Joshua, talks about how Abraham's father and grandfather worshipped false gods. Which probably means, probably, that Abraham did too. He was raised on this worship of gods. Now, now the, uh, the ancient Mesopotamian world was very superstitious. And they really strongly believed that, that God was like interwoven into the fabric of the universe. So, so God was not something that, or someone that was separate from the creation. He was intermingled all throughout it. And so, so you could manipulate God by manipulating the universe. So that's why they would build idols of wood. Because that's how you manipulate a God who's in the wood. That's why they would pray to the tree, because that's how you manipulate a god who is in the tree. And so, so you do the, you cast these spells, and you, you say these superstitious things, and the gods and the goddesses are obligated to come down and do what you want. I think Herb Chaldees would have been pretty comfortable with things like voodoo and Santeria. It's a lot like that. This is the concept, this is the, the culture that Abram comes up in. His family is a bunch of idolaters. They're worshiping gods and goddesses that have been devised by human imagination. They're worshiping statues that have been crafted by human hands. And Abram is coming up in this, seeing what his parents are, are worshiping. And the most prominent god was, was called Sin. And uh, he was supposed to be the most powerful creator God who controlled everything. And, but he was just one of many gods. And then God, the real God, the true God, the most high God, speaks to Abram in the midst of all of this. And he cuts like a laser beam through the fog of all of this superstition and religion and idolatry. And he says, Abram, it's time to leave. 
I don't just want you to leave your comfortable life behind. I don't just want you to leave your family behind and your tribe and your city. I want you to leave your idolatry behind. I want you to leave the gods that have captivated your heart. It is time to have a funeral for those gods and to follow me, the true living God, into Canaan. That's what's involved, ultimately, in this decision to leave. It is a a decision for Abram to cling to God. Now, a lot of times we read this, and I think we, we insert something in here that isn't actually here. And we're like, Abram was a really godly man. That's why God came and got him. That's not actually what the text says. In fact, probably the implication of Joshua 24 is that Abraham was an idolater. And still God came and got him. And said, I pick you. And I pick you to bless all the nations of the earth. You you might remember as we ended our root series, we talked about the fact that in the table of nations, in Genesis 10 and 11, there are 70 tribes, 70 families. And God picks one of those families, the family of Abram the family that would later become the Jewish people. He picks one family to bless the other 69. He picks one family, the Jewish people, to bring salvation to all nations, tribes, and tongues. So what God is doing in this moment when he speaks to Abram, he's not just trying to like save one guy or improve one guy's spirituality. God is acting for the salvation of the world. God is acting because this is the plan that he has conceived from eternity past. This is the plan that he has conceived to roll back the curse, to restore paradise, to bring about the new heavens and the new earth, to bring about reconciliation between God and humanity. And it all hinges upon this man. It's interesting that God, a sovereign, all-powerful God, chooses in some way to limit himself to a flawed, sinful human guy. Because God obligates himself to work through Abram. Over the next few chapters, he, he makes certain promises to Abram. Unconditional promises that can't be revoked. God chooses to use a sinner. And Abraham has to leave. Now, I don't know what idols you might be grappling with. I don't know what gods or goddesses might vie for your heart. They may not be as overtly superstitious as the God scene that Abram and his family probably worshipped. It may not be something like black magic or Santeria, but it might be the idol of consumerism. Here in America, we've all been pretty warped by stuff. And uh, marketers know how to make us think that we need stuff that we don't need at all. And it creates within us a dissatisfaction. And we begin to long for stuff. And we begin to live for stuff. We become consumers. It affects the way we approach everything. It affects the way we approach friendships. It affects the way we approach church. How can I consume? How can I can be fed? What's in it for me? And we approach all of life as a consumer, as a, as a materialist. Maybe it's the idol of, or the god of individualism. In America, we're really good at that too. Just me, 
pulling myself up by the bootstraps. I don't need anybody else. If you see where I came from, I did it my way. I did it all on my own. I don't need anybody else. This is an American idol. It's a Western idol. This idea that I don't need anybody else. But the Bible teaches us the opposite, that we were created to be in relationship. We were created to be in community. We were created to be in the family of God, which is the church. This is where we find our purpose. This is where we find our identity, our meaning, our mission, our significance in life. Those are two idols. We could probably talk all day about the idols that permeate our culture and touch our lives without us even recognizing it and realizing it. But what I want to encourage us to do as we reflect on this text is to notice that Abram left his idols behind. Now, I'm not saying you have to have all your junk in order to follow Jesus. Um, the journey of faith is one step and then another and then another. So the step before me is the... That's really the one I have to be obedient to. Jesus says, do this, and I do that. And then he shows me something else, and I do that. So what idols have wrapped their tendrils around your heart, around my heart? What has affected us and shaped us and touched us without us even realizing? Abram leaves his idols behind because the journey of faith involves leaving. But it also involves worshiping. Look at what happens when he finally shows up in Canaan. Verse, uh, the end of verse 5 says, When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram, I'm in verse 6 now, passed through the land to the site of Shechem at the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Now, um, we could read this and think that this is a throwaway detail here. This is just, this is just to help us visualize. There's some trees, Right? Oak. Okay. So it helps us to imagine this narrative. But this is not a throwaway detail. Not at all. Um, the writer of Genesis wants us to understand the significance of these trees. So in ancient Canaanite culture, the land in which Abram was arriving on this journey, what the Canaanites did was they worshipped at the trees. And they specifically erected shrines at these major oak trees. Why? Because they believed that the oak trees had the power over fertility. They were an agrarian society. They needed the gods and goddesses to, to make their crops abundant and fertile. They wanted to have kids, which was a sign of power in ancient Near Eastern cultures, especially if you could manage to have a son. Like it was a sign of power. So you wanted the gods and goddesses who were in the trees, or so they thought, they wanted to offer sacrifices and manipulate the gods in the trees so that somehow the gods in the trees, the oak trees at Mora, would make them fertile. Now, Abram is not ignorant of the culture that he is stepping into. But he understands that the god that he serves is totally different. He's not like the gods that he left behind in Ur of the Chaldees, and he's not like the gods that are here in Canaan. Those gods have in common one thing, that they're all mixed up into the universe. They're woven into the fabric of the planet. But Abram, even if he's not an expert on God, understands what we call transcendence. The God is transcendent. He is separate. So you've got the creator and you've got the creation. 
two totally separate things. And God is outside of the creation. Now he is active in it. He works in it. He sends Jesus into it. But God, the creator, is not the creation. And so you've got an infertile couple, Abram and Sarai, who have been promised a child. And they show up at an oak tree where the Canaanites were used to worshiping their gods and goddesses and asking for the blessing of fertility. It's no accident that Abram decides to make a countercultural declaration of the one true God. And he builds an altar. The cool thing about this is that this is an altar that's there long after he's gone. So every time the Canaanites come back to this tree to try to manipulate the gods, to try to try to see if they can get their way and see if the stars will be in their favor, they look over here and there's this, there's this altar. They're like, what is that? That's not how we do things. And they begin to learn slowly but surely that there is a new God on the block. And he calls himself the Most High God. He calls himself the only God. He calls himself the one true God. And Abram makes a countercultural uh, declaration of the reality of the Creator God in this moment. Now, keep in mind, this cosmic plan of redemption that God had promised, this plan to roll back the curse, this, this plan to restore paradise, this plan to save the human race, all of it hinges upon an infertile couple having a child. It's like, it's like God's like, I don't want to make it too easy. I don't want to pick some 20-year-olds who, you know, are going to easily have some kids. I want to pick those people in their 70s who have been trying for 40 years unsuccessfully. That's who I want to pick. Because I want the world to understand that this is a miracle. I want the world to understand the significance of what I am seeking to accomplish here. So God puts himself in a corner. He says, this is it. I'm not going to save the world through any other way. Any other people, any other kids. If Abraham has other kids, those aren't going to be the ones that bring salvation. It's Abraham and Sarah together through their children, through their son, through their offspring. I will save the world. And we know as Christians, looking back, that that promise was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus comes as a son of Abraham. And he offers salvation to all of the other families of the world, to all of the other nations, to all of the other cultures and tribes. And that's how we can all be in this room together today. Hailing from a lot of different cultures, hailing from a lot of different tribes, a lot of different families, because we have been blessed through the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. And so Abram doesn't just leave the gods of Ur behind. He comes and he worships the one true God. He makes his countercultural declaration that this is where I plant my flag. I plant my flag right next to the oak tree at Morah. I plant my flag right next to the Canaanite shrine. I build my altar and I declare that this God that I cannot see will one day make me and my wife parents. And that somehow, 
in a way that I don't understand, this is going to save the world. Abraham worships God. And how does God respond? In verse 7, the Lord appears to Abraham and says, to your offspring, I will give this land. He says, you're right, Abraham. This land is yours, but it's not just for you and Sarah. It's for your kids. Just a reminder, you're going to have a child. It comes, the, the, the repeat on the promise comes after Abraham takes that journey of faith. It comes after he has ventured out. It comes after he has built the altar and worshipped God. And God's like, yeah, I hear your worship. I hear your prayers. I hear your cries. I'm still going to be faithful. These, these Canaanite gods and goddesses, they are nothing. It's just a tree. I made that tree. Abraham, just trust and so Abram's journey unfolds as he leaves, as he worships. But then it's doubts. A lot of us aren't quite sure what to do with the second half of the chapter. It says that there's a famine in the land. And so Abraham and his wife Sarai, they go down into Egypt. Because there's more food down there. And so as they're going, Abram's got like this great idea. He says, hey honey, um, I'm afraid people will think that we're married. We don't want people thinking that we're married because you're so good looking that I'm afraid that they will knock me off and just take you. So we said, here's what we'll do. We will say that I'm your brother. Now, uh, we know from other parts of, of the Bible that that wasn't entirely a lie. It was just kind of a lie. Um, he was half brother, but it's still a lie. But here's his idea. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read between the lines a little bit. I think, I think what, I, what I'm about to say is a, is a fair reading based on the culture and the history of this moment. Here's what Abram is, is up to. He knows that back then, if you wanted to marry a woman, uh, in those cultures, you had to pay a steep dowry to the closest male relative. So he's like, I'm going to game the system. I'm going to tell him that I'm her brother. So when, when uh, you know, this dashing young man wants to marry my good-looking wife, he'll come to me, and he'll say, what's the price? And I'll just name a price so outrageous, he'll give up. And we'll be good. And nobody will ever be able to take my wife, and they won't be able to kill me. They'll try, and they'll fail, and it'll all work out well. And so Abram, having just worshipped the Most High God at the oak tree of Morah, has a terrible lapse in faith as he journeys down into Egypt. What he doesn't count on he, is the fact that the person who would be most interested in his wife is Pharaoh. You see, he thought that uh, if a man was interested, they'd come to him and ask him, because that was the law, that was the custom of the culture. But Pharaoh's like, I make my own laws. I'm not interested in cultural expectations. So he says, uh, take her. And so Abram's like, wait, this wasn't the plan. Like, we were going to work out a dowry thing, and I was going to turn it down, and, and it was going to work out to our favor. But before he knows it, all of a sudden, Sarai is in the harem. She is one of Pharaoh's many mistresses. Now, I think it is most likely that um, Based on the way that they did ancient marriages back then, there would have been a lengthy waiting period to ensure that she's not pregnant. So 
She would have been off limits to every man in the palace, especially to Pharaoh. But she's cooped up with the other women, probably ticked off at Abram. Would you be ticked off at your husband if this happened to you? <laughs> the men are nodding, yeah. You're like, yeah, I'd be mad. Um, and Abram, all of a sudden, gets paid this massive dowry by Pharaoh. Says that he's given all of this stuff. <laughs> so Abram suddenly becomes way richer than he already was, but his wife is stuck in the harem. And she's probably preserved. Her honor is probably protected, at least so far. And he's scheming. He's like trying to figure out, how do I get her out? What am I going to do? Like, do I pay the, the dowry back to Pharaoh? Do I tell him the truth? Then he might just kill me. Like, Pharaoh doesn't respect the laws. Pharaoh doesn't respect our customs and our cultures. Like, what am I going to do? And then God intervenes. And everybody in Pharaoh's household starts getting this plague. Now, I think probably the implication of the text is that everybody gets the plague but Sarah. That's how he knows that whatever is going on, it has to do with this new woman in his household. So he's like, Abraham, what is going on? Finds out that they're married. He says, what, what have you done to me? What are, you, what are you doing? Why didn't you just tell me the truth? And verse 20 says, then Pharaoh gave his men orders about him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Now there's a lot of different directions we could go with this part of the story. But I think one of, the, one of the things I want to land on is that Abram struggles. He doubts. His journey of faith is not marked by perfection. It's not marked by 100% successes all the time. He takes some steps forward. And he takes some steps backwards. Throws his wife under the bus or under the camel or whatever. You throw someone under back then. But God is faithful to her and preserves her and preserves her reputation and preserves her body in the midst of a difficult environment. And at the end of it, Abram emerges from Egypt with his wife's honor intact and a far richer man than when he went in. Does that mean that everything he did was right? No. Like a lot of times we read the stories of the Bible and we're like, well, they did this and it kind of worked out, so that must be okay. But that's not the point of the stories. The point of the story is that God was faithful in the midst of Abram's sin. Abram blew it. And God's like, you blew it so bad, I'm going to bless you with more camels and more stuff than you could ever imagine. As a testimony to this thing I call grace. And so Abram and Sarah are probably having some pretty awkward conversations. Journey back to Canaan. Having this dialogue, having a friendly chit-chat about what just went down in Egypt, and they're seeing firsthand the gracious hand of God in their lives. You see, the journey of faith for Abraham in this chapter involved not only leaving and worshiping, but it involved doubting. Now, the first two are good things. The third is not. The Bible says whatever is not of faith is sin. But I also recognize and understand that many of us are going to doubt and we are going to struggle and we are going to take those steps backwards on our journey. The important thing is that we don't stay in Egypt. We get back out like Abraham did. Most importantly, because the focus is not on Abraham and the focus is not on us. The focus is on God. God is the hero of this story. God is the one who is gracious. God is the one who is faithful. 
You see, it would be very easy to read this and be very moralistic and be like, just try harder than Abraham. Just be better than Abraham. But that's not the point. The point is we have a God who is better than Abraham. We have a God who is faithful when we sin. We have a God who woos us even when we doubt. We have a God who is faithful even when we disbelieve. So our journey involves leaving. It involves worshiping. It will probably involve doubt. How do we respond to this? Well, I've got three suggested points of application that I should have up on the screen. First off is that the journey of faith requires leaving the gods of this world behind. We've already really kind of talked about that and touched on that. Leaving whatever gods are consuming your heart, leaving those idols behind. Having a funeral for them, leaving them in Ur of the Chaldees. Second, the journey of faith requires an honesty about our own sin. The cool thing about the Bible's narratives are that it never, never sanitizes the heroes of the Bible. Like the, the, the best heroes of the Bible are like some really bad people that do some really bad stuff. Why? Because the Bible just gives us a realistic portrait of their lives. Because they're not really the point. God is the point. So we, when we read a story like this, at the beginning we're like, Abraham is amazing. And then at the end, we're like, what did he do to his wife? That's awful. Abraham, I'm sure, had an honest look into the mirror as he heads back into Canaan, looking at his own sin, recognizing what was in his own heart. You and I have to do the same thing. If we are going to take a journey of faith, it requires an honesty about our own sin. It requires a humility and a willingness to acknowledge where we have failed. Third, I think the journey of faith requires a gaze fixed upon God. Requires a gaze fixed upon God. Abraham kept journeying forward. And I want to end by going to Hebrews chapter 11. I don't know what um, page this is in your Bible, but I've got the verses up on the screen. Hebrews chapter 11 describes Abraham. It says, by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring even though she was past the age, since she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. Therefore, from one man, in fact, from one as good as dead, came offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and as innumerable as the grains of sand along the seashore. These all died in faith, although they had not received the things that were promised, but they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. Now those who say such things make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return. But they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. According to the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament, what kept Abram moving forward was his unshakable faith that there was a city that awaited him. Abraham was kind of a nomad. 
moved around from spot to spot, didn't have a like super permanent home in Canaan. He's like, but I don't need that because this world is not my home. I'm on a pilgrimage. I'm on a journey. And it's a journey that ends on the streets of a celestial city. It's a journey that ends in the New Jerusalem. It's a journey that ends in Zion. And it's a journey that will take me home. As we ponder the events of the last week and the shooting in Las Vegas, these things tend to hurt. They, they weigh on us. They eat at us. We read the news about what happened and we're like, this is so horrible. How could this happen? And we feel the weight. We feel the evil. And if we're Christians, we, we know instinctively this is not the way it's supposed to be. And we long for another city. You see, like Abraham, if we're a follower of Jesus, each of us is on a spiritual journey. We live here, but this world is not our home. And so the challenge for us, the tension for us, is how to be both at home in the world and at odds with the world. At home in the culture and critiquing the culture all at the same time because we're on a journey. We're moving towards this heavenly city, this city whose builder and maker is God as Abraham is described in in Hebrews that he's looking forward. He's on this winding journey in Canaan. Lots of twists, lots of turns, lots of grisly and sordid details over the next 10 chapters. But one thing is true, that his gaze is fixed upon a city. A city that captivates him. A city that compels him. And it's like, it's like there's this gravitational pull from this city. And it's pulling him in. It's taking him home. I want to end with a quote from the British missionary named Leslie Newbegin. He's a missionary to India who said that a chasm cuts across the landscape between the place where I stand and the glorious vision of the holy city that I see on the horizon of my world. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus have opened up a way on which I can travel toward the city. Abram lived on that side of the crucifixion and resurrection, but he still looked for the city. You and I live on this side of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So we look back. And because we look back to those pivotal moments in human history, we are also able to look forward and know that at the end of our journey, there is a city coming. And while our world may not make sense, our individual lives and our families and, and, and our community and our country and the world may not always make sense to us. And sometimes it may hurt like crazy. But we put one forward, one foot in front of the other because we know where we're going. We know what the end of the story is. We don't know the twists and turns, just like Abram didn't know the twists and turns, but he knew the end. He knew the last page of the story. He knew that he was on the right side of human history because he was ending up in a city. Instead of having the band come up and lead us in a final song, we're going to listen to a song that describes a little bit of this journey. Hopefully, the, hopefully it works. It's a song called The Far Country 
by Andrew Peterson reflects upon Abraham's journey. What I want us to do, I want you to take your response card and I want you to just look at it and reflect and pray and think as we listen to this song. 